From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Simon Holmes Accord and his Climate 200 Fund, which backed many independent candidates at the federal election, have had a spectacularly successful political year so far. Half a dozen so-called teal candidates won lower house seats, and a progressive upper house candidate, David Pocock, who was also assisted by Climate 200, holds a pivotal vote in the Senate. Now Climate 200 is shaping up for two state elections, Victoria in November and New South Wales in March. The battles will be different and potentially more complicated than the federal one for Teal candidates. But the outcomes for Teal-type independence will be read as a clue to the long-term future of this phenomenon, which is not a party but part of a strong movement reflecting the desire by many voters for community candidates. Simon Holmes Accord joins us today to talk about the movement and the state elections. Simon Holmes Accord, we know from the federal election that many people are deserting the major parties. So this leaves a bundle of votes there for the taking by minor players. What is the picture looking like in Victoria and New South Wales for the state elections? Well, certainly in the in the community independence movement that I'm close to, uh, there is a lot of enthusiasm, buoyed very much by success at the federal election. But to give you an indication, at the Cathy McGowan's community independence project, ran a conference for people interested in the community independence uh, movement. Uh, nearly 500 people from more than 100 electorates turned up to that conference and heard many sessions on how to how to run for office and how to run a community campaign. And there there was a lot of interest in both the Victorian and New South Wales um, streams of that conference. Um, a little bit closer to home through Climate 200, we've polled. Um, basic, basically, the, I, I think, it, I mean, it comes down to, maybe it's a cliche, but it, it is seat by seat. These community campaigns rise up in a seat and where the, the planets align, um, they have uh, a good chance of, of winning. And we, we've we polled uh, a number of seats that sit underneath the ones that were successful um, underneath the seats that held by Zoe Daniel and Monique Ryan. Um, there are five prospects there, I guess, where communities have stood up and we see that the electoral math stacks up. Um, but there are quite a few others around the state. Uh, Mornington, for instance, there's a great candidate down there. Uh, and there are some regional candidates. Victoria's already got two in the low, lower house, Susanna Sheed and Ali Cupper, both good local members standing again. Uh, and we, we're aware of some more independents around the state. There is talk in Victoria that there might be some independents or minor parties challenging more in the outer suburbs and putting a lot of you know, heat on the Andrews government, uh, responding to the frustrations uh, in those communities, but we haven't seen much from the community independence movement, that demographic yet. So are the so-called teals as distinguishable for the state elections as they were federally, or is the distinction between them and other community candidates now being rather more blurred? Yeah, it's it's interesting. There's no official definition of a, of, of a teal. Um, uh, in fact, none of the independents that won had teal as their colour. Um, and the, if you look back at the media monitoring, the, the name teal didn't stick 
to the movement uh, until about five or six weeks before the election. Here we are, maybe nine weeks before the Victorian election. Um, so it was very late in the game that the media found a label, but there's still debate over who's a teal and who's not a teal. And, and we'll see that same thing at the state level where you know some people will, will argue it right the way through to the end and, and past it. But it's really a fun debate for political commentators but at the ground level, it really comes down to strong candidates being supported by a strong community campaign uh, and getting out the volunteers and having a big presence. And the, the colour uh, or, or the label doesn't really play into that for the voters in those seats. So do you have a definition of... Uh of teal as opposed to broader community candidates. No, I notice you've got um, teal in the, the title of a book you've got coming out soon. Yeah, and initially I, I start the book with some commentary on that that it's not it's not a label we chose or any of the candidates chose. From Climate 200's perspective, we're always on the lookout for strong campaigns with good candidates that are values aligned, and maybe. Um, you know, some might call that a teal or not. I, I'm, I'm not sure. But for us, a candidate that we support is, is yeah, one that's strong campaign, good candidate, uh, values aligned, and importantly, in a winnable position. Now, the federal teals were criticised for only targeting liberal seats. In Victoria, you would surely think that some of them should be pushing on Labor seats with Labor in government and much criticism of Labor on issues like integrity. Yeah, I think that, well, firstly, the criticism misses the, I guess, the understanding of the movement, that each of these movements is is local. So uh, they rise up in response to local factors. And federally, they rose up in response to frustration with the representation people were getting. There, there, were, there was no um, central strategy that these were the seats to target. Rather, it was the individual communities that rose up in those seats. So there is, for instance, uh, Hawthorne, one of the seats uh, that sits underneath Kuyong is currently held by Labor. And there's a strong community campaign being run in that seat. The other seat that sits under Kuyong is Q, which is held by the coalition. So there is a challenge there. There are certainly some seats that Labor would like to win that they will be unhappy uh, to see the competition and you know, fully expect that there will be independence and possibly some minor party pushing against Labor in some other seats as well. The federal teals did have uh, climate, integrity and equity for women at the very centre of their campaigns. I think this was common across them all. What do you think the primary state pitches will be? Uh, certainly climate and integrity are very big issues uh, in Victoria. The um, Our polling shows that climate is um, is very high and people are still frustrated with the pace of change and some of the Andrews government's actions there. For instance, uh, they've opened up gas leases right near the 12 Apostles on the Great Ocean Road. There's our old growth forests are being clear felled and burnt all the way through to the end of this decade. And Victoria has the most uh, retrograde electric vehicle policy in Australia. It's the only state that has a tax on electric vehicles. So there's plenty of grist for campaigning on climate. We also have, you know, Victoria might have a slightly green tinge to its image, but we have the dirtiest grid in the country and a less certain plan for phasing out coal than, um, than New South Wales, for example. So there's plenty of grist on the, on the um, climate front. 
And then on integrity, uh, as anyone watching the Victorian media will know, you know, there's a pox on both major parties when it comes to integrity. Both major parties have really um, got uh, a, a lot of dirty laundry. And when there's a certain threat, I think when a threshold's been met, people are looking for change and the, the optimism uh, that, that comes with this movement and the great example that the federal community independents have made really, I, th I think, uh, helps draw focus to the value of having more independence in Parliament. You mentioned a couple of the federal seats and obviously in these seats, for example, in Kuyong, you had a, a candidate where there was an enormous surge of local support of volunteers to help Monique Ryan into Parliament. Would you anticipate that this same base of people would be there for the state candidates or are these community groups very separate? Well, last Thursday night was the launch and first pizza night for Melissa Lowe, the independent candidate in Hawthorne. I went down to the office, which happens to be the same office that Monique Ryan ran her campaign from. It, it, was, it was amazing. I, um, there were about 150 people there. A lot of faces were familiar from the faces I saw at uh, Monique's campaigns, but a whole lot of new faces that came with the candidate. People, you know, she had her own networks, um, big family, uh, professional and community networks that came along too. So there is, um, there's certainly crossover of people, of volunteers between the Kuyong campaign and Hawthorne. And again with Q, which she launched with uh, Sophie Tawney last Friday night. And then again, um, Kate Lardner down in Mornington, some of her volunteers were the same volunteers that worked on um, Despie O'Connor's campaign in, in Flinders at the federal level. So uh, a lot of people got the bug and are continuing their, their involvement so yes, I, I, there were you know, hundreds of people at each of these launches and they're um, raring to go at campaigning and they know how to win, but it's, it's uh, people power that will do it. That's really the, the only way to win as an independent, I was going to say at state level, but at federal as well. Well, people power, but money power too. What role will Climate 200 play in these state elections? So... Uh, in, in everything we do, our, our job is to try to level the playing field as much as we can. Now, the playing field in Victoria is tilted very heavily towards the major parties. There's been a lot of donation reform in Victoria that massively increased public funding, but reduced the ability to take donations. Um, and while that sounds like a very good move, the public funding is only available to incumbents. New entrants uh, start with zero and, um, and, and don't receive, uh, you know, they'll receive some public funding if they're successful after the election. So our job is to try to level the playing field. Uh, a big part of that is introducing campaigns to, uh, to advisors. This is a very um, collaborative movement where people share knowledge across boundaries and share um, people write guides in how to do it or, or, or trainings so we we spend a lot of time identifying what the knowledge gaps are and how we can fill them either ourselves or by introducing to other people who are giving their time but one of the one of the things we can do our federal model of raising a large amount of money and then directing it to the campaigns that needed it uh, that doesn't work in in Victoria or in New South Wales why doesn't it work? Could you just explain that? Uh, the biggest donation we can make to a campaign is $4,320. Uh, there's no such caps. Does that apply in both states? Oh, sorry. In, in, it's lower in, um, uh, lower in New South Wales. I think it's 3000 in New South Wales. Yeah, the, um, absolute hard, hard limits. 
Now that would make sense if it was a level playing field, or at least you know we, we wouldn't we wouldn't have a role if it was a level playing field. But there's um, in Victoria, for instance, in this electoral cycle, there's over fifty million dollars of public money that's gone into the majors. Anyone challenging is on their own, but is subject to the same donation caps. So our our model of dealing with this federally was that we fundraised eleven thousand two hundred people, put together thirteen million dollars for the federal campaign. And then we worked out using analytics. We're, we're very proud of our ability to identify where where things are moving to read the analytics and have useful seat polls. Um, I think we showed that at the at the federal election that we we're, we're good at that. Uh, our mo- that that model doesn't work at the state level where there are the caps. So our job is to activate people within the movement. The eleven thousand donors uh, that that we have. The 20,000 volunteers that worked on the federal campaigns is uh, to make sure they know about these campaigns and that they support them. And then maybe we can go some way to leveling the playing field. But these these campaigns will be a fraction of the budget of the majors. So the way to get through that is people power. And, and you'll be encouraging donors to give directly to the candidates to yes. get around this issue of the uh, limit. Obviously, much harder to do, and it's a it's a more pure way. I think of you know if if people are making the decision to which exact campaign they're going to donate to, uh, you know I, I think it's an advancement in some ways. The only problem is the um, the donation amounts are absolutely swamped by the massive amounts of public funding that are going into the into the election, which are not available to these challenging campaigns. You have called for some reform of the uh, whole system of spending money. What would you like to see? There will be um, there will be calls for reform after the election. In fact, it's baked into the Act. Uh, Fiona Patton's Reason Party have put an amendment into the Act to call for a review. And one of the one of the elements of that is an investigation of spending caps. It does make sense uh, when when people first think about it that there would be expenditure caps, but if there are, it has to be done very carefully, and I'll, I'll just quickly explain why there are there are eighty eight seats in Victoria for both your Labor and the Coalition. Only about twenty of those seats are in play. The other sixty eight seats are either unwinnable or super safe. If you so so the, of the of the most of the millions tens of millions that is going to be spent on this election will be spent in those battleground seats. If parties can underinvest in some seats and massively invest in the battleground seats and then average it out under a cap, that uh, you'll see battleground seats having million dollar campaigns for the majors, and you'll see independent challenging campaigns struggling to put together even a hundred thousand dollars to compete. Uh, locking them out of the system. So any reform that, that that happens has got to look at two things. One is how do we reduce the um, the negative influences of money in campaigns? And then the second one is how do we make it fair? Uh, I think it should be a principle of our elections that people of equal merit have equal opportunity to be elected. Um, and, and so we, we should start with that as a principle for our reform. You've mentioned uh, public funding and how that favours the majors. What about a system that was totally publicly funded? Yeah, it's well, it's a good question. Um, can anybody put their hand up and, and receive public funding uh, it, with no track record? You know, if the, um, uh, the angry Victorian party said, we, we want to run and we want $5 million of, of public money to do it. So, so the, the, devil's, the devil's in the details. Who qualifies for public funding? And the way it's done in, at the moment in, in Australia is it's done 
based on your track record um, of how you went in the last election. Now, that doesn't work for an independent who didn't run last time and may not intend to stick around for three or four elections trying to build up uh well they don't have they don't have access to the the um the, the tens of millions of dollars that the parties already have in their reserves and the new public money coming in so the devil is in the details i'm not sure of 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 the solution i think some more work has been done on this in new south wales with startup funding or allowances for independence as has been done in victoria where it un- un- unfortunately is sort of entrenching a two-party system now, you've stressed that uh, Climate 200 does not maintain any ties with candidates once they've become parliamentarians. But can you reflect on whether you think that the uh, federal community candidates, in particular the Teal candidates, have made any difference to Parliament in this admittedly brief period since the election? Because in the lower house, for example, the Teals don't have power, they really only have influence, and that goes for the whole crossbench because the government has a majority. I'll I'll get to that, but one thing I do want to... The the question of whether maintaining ties once the candidate's been elected, we actually don't have ties at any point in the process. The candidates that we support are all... It's it's absolutely um, fundamental to our relationship that there are no ties between them. You know, we certainly look forward to supporting them again as it comes up to the next election, but yeah, at no point are there ties. But let me reflect on... But you have fairly active relationships because you help them with the money and you do help them with advice. And we'll, you know, we'll continue you know, when, when asked to, to, do, to do both, but obviously outside of the electoral cycle, there, there isn't such. But uh, I was reflecting on this the other day that I, I, I spend more time talking you know, I, I, I spend time talking um, with uh, politicians of all stripes about climate policy, but it's for me, it's um, you know, it's 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 not an area I go with um, the independents. We're very very careful to stay at arm's length. But shall I shall I, I I'll, I'll get to your question. About reflections on the performance of the of the independents to date, or, or the difference that they've made. The your 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 differentiation you made between influence and power, I think, is really really interesting. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that Zali Stegel put twenty a twenty thirty target on the agenda uh, in the last parliament when neither party wanted to talk about it. I, I think it, it's fair to say that we wouldn't have a twenty thirty target uh, without Zali's advocacy, and we wouldn't have uh, national ICAC being in the near term on the political horizon if it wasn't for Helen Haynes's excellent work in the last parliament we've seen. So, so I, I expect we'll see continued influence like that. They will influence the national debate. Um, but one thing's clear, talking, talking to people uh, who, who live and work around parliament, the arrival of the of the independents. You know, we, we now we now have a crossbench which is the same size as the National Party in the lower house. Uh, and I'm I'm hearing um, from all quarters that this is changing the demeanour in the house. You know, not not only um, is there slightly more civility, but the majors have become aware that uh, there are very much fewer safe seats than they were uh, th- th- than we than we thought before the before the election. That there are seats with very significant margins that will change hands uh, to a community independent um, if, if the incumbent member doesn't respect the community in the way that the community obviously uh, is, is now has an expectation of. I think that example uh, of, you know, and we've seen, um, we've seen private 
uh, or motions come up from the floor challenging the unusual grant that was made to the um, to, to the uh, Australian Future Leaders Forum from Monique Ryan. We've seen David Pocock flexing his Senate muscle. We've seen Sophie Scomps um, start a conversation on junk food advertising on children's television time. And Zoe Daniel just today a motion on media diversity judicial inquiry. So the independents are influencing. And uh, I think everyone you know, who's, who's looking at the numbers will recognise that it is a f- very finely balanced parliament. You take 76 to govern and the, the current government only has 77 seats. And a few of those seats were only won by a couple of hundred votes. So we're on the precipice of, of a, a, quite a new type of politics uh, in Australia. And we've had, we've had a hint of that through the, um, the independence in the previous terms as well. Now, you mentioned that you spend quite a lot of time talking to politicians about climate policy. So let's just finish up with a question on climate policy. The opposition is looking at including nuclear power in the policy that it takes to the next election. Do you think that nuclear power is a possible viable option for Australia in coming years? Well, firstly, the the technical and economic analysis is that it's uncompetitive and would take too long to implement to make a difference. Um, but let's put that aside. That's the, the, the facts as things are now and based on economics, which is not really, shouldn't really be the basis, I think, of, of government energy policy. The question, at the moment, we have a ban on nuclear. Now, I, I, the ban was symbolic in that without the ban, um, the ban was put in, in, in I think, uh, 1999, nearly 30 years after Australia committed and then cancelled a nuclear power station. So there was a 30-year period we didn't build nuclear. The ban put in place didn't actually change anyone's plans about building nuclear. And if we remove that, the ban, it wouldn't make any difference either. Uh, so nuclear in Australia, and, and nuclear has a role internationally and, and is playing a very significant role globally. But in, in Australia, it's really a, um, it's a dead cat issue. It's the subject of, I think we've had four reviews in the last six years on it, and they generally all come down to the same conclusion that, that it's uneconomic and, and, and the timescales in which to build it are, um, are too great with, with current offerings. So it's, it's really a distraction. I don't understand how the coalition thinks it'll play out for them politically because it's a very divisive issue, but they will... Um, they will follow their uh, they will they will play out their culture wars and it's one of the elements in the culture war. Simon Holmes Court, thank you very much for talking with us today and we'll watch with interest the teal movement in both Victoria and New South Wales over the coming months. That's all for today's podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett, and we'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.